Can we talk? No, I mean really talk. Not in the usual typing, texting, posting, commenting sort of way we're so used to. Where discussions become debates. And somehow, every opinion is wrong. I'm talking about truly thoughtful, considerate, healthy communication. Because I have questions, and I'm convinced there are answers. Sure, it may get uncomfortable or awkward, heated or hot, but I'm not willing to let fear, insecurity, anger or pain get in the way of fulfillment, insight, answers, and peace. I need to know, when it comes to bigotry, exclusivity, and anxiety, misogyny, sexual sanctity, and agony, what does God demand? What does the Bible command? Where do we stand? So, are you ready to talk? Well, good morning. It is good to see you here. Those of you here, those of you in Skagit, glad you're joining with us. And those in Boca Raton, those watching online with the live stream, it's good to have you with us. Uh, if you tried to uh, tune in last night, sorry about some of the technical issues on that. So we're glad you're with us today. Speaking of live stream, there's a, a wonderful individual that watches with us and joins with us every week on our live stream, and that is Helen Christen. Some of you know Helen. This week on Friday, Helen turned 104 years old. And uh, yeah, so... She's not able to come here as frequently as she would like, but she joins us every week online, and I got to go out to her house and spend some time with her, pray with her on Friday. What an incredible woman. She said, you know, Pastor Bob, the older I get, the more I learn. And I thought, well, then there's hope for me. So here she is, 104 years old, so we're just uh, so blessed to have her as a part of our, of our body. We started this uh, series, Conversations, last weekend and talking about the judgmental nature of Christians so often. And I understand that that sparked some good conversations. In fact, we had one small group leader say it was the most, I guess, robust conversation they'd had in their small group ever talking about that issue. And today we're going to continue on with another issue that will open up some conversations. Maybe it's an issue that you've had conversations about. And what we're talking about today is one that has been a conversation for the last 2,000 years and because of this conversation, very often Christians are accused of being narrow-minded, being exclusive, maybe even being arrogant, maybe even to the point of being you know, intolerant, judgmental, and bigoted. And I will just say this right on the front end, that what we're talking about today is an enormous topic with absolute volumes that have been written on it, and I think I may have bitten off more than I can chew because today I don't have the time to give justice to this. It will open up some conversations, and part of the problem is that I want to cover three different areas today. I, when it comes to this, this topic, I want us to take some time and look at just kind of some, some philosophical implications and some things that, that I think are worth at least thinking about and talking about. I want us to talk about the foundational explanation of this issue and this, this topic, this conversation. And then I want us to spend some time with some theological considerations that are a result as, as some questions that may arise from that. So that's what we're going to try to cover in our time today. And, uh, and I'm going to have to kind of go quickly over this and skim over it again. I know from the very beginning I don't have time to do this justice. I apologize for that. So let's just jump into it. Many of us were raised in church. Some of us were. And there was a classic Sunday school answer for every question in church. What was that answer? 
Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today, which is a good thing. It's a good thing to go to a Christian church and hear the preacher talk about Jesus. Today we're going to talk about Jesus. And I would say this, that, that any reputable scholar or even student would not disagree, would not question the historicity of Jesus. Because there's extra biblical accounts about a man that lived about 2,000 years ago in Israel named Jesus. Anyone who says he didn't live in history probably is on the conspiracy theory side of things and thinks the moon is made of cheese and such like that. No one disagrees that there was a historical individual named Jesus. The disagreement comes in who was this man or what was this man. And there's a lot of questions about that. Even when you look into world religions, when they talk about who was this man Jesus, what was this man Jesus, there's a lot of disagreement. In Hinduism, Jesus is seen as a god. Not the god, but a god. In Buddhism, Jesus is seen as an enlightened one. In Judaism, Jesus would be seen as a rabbi or, for some, a rebel. In Islam, he is seen as a prophet. The Jehovah's Witnesses look at Jesus, and they believe that he was Michael the Archangel. The Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, believe that Jesus was the brother of Satan. And when you get into deist, or atheist, or secularist, they would say Jesus, this historical figure, was a great human, a great teacher. Now, if you look at all these different views about Jesus, in our pluralistic society, if we take a pluralistic approach to this, it's all great. Everyone has their own opinions. It's great. Believe and let believe. It's a wonderful thing. We all can get along and be harmonious. The only problem with that is Jesus refused to put himself into a pluralistic understanding of who he was. Jesus would not allow us to take a pluralistic view of it. In fact, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus would make these outlandish claims that he and the Father were one, that he was God, that if you'd seen him, you'd seen the Father. And then he makes this statement. And this statement alone can be the genesis of the conversation we enter into today. This statement alone is the spark. It's the launching pad of everything that we will discuss today. And you cannot take this statement too lightly in John 14 where Jesus answered and said, I am, which in and of itself was a statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one says, no one comes to the Father except through me. All right, before we get into any kind of evaluation of whether or not this is true, this statement is very, very exclusive. When he says, no one, I am this, 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 and no one, those are very exclusive statements. If it's not true, Jesus would be very foolish to state and to hold to this statement. Because in essence, what he is saying here is what sent him to the cross, the fact that he claimed to be God, the Messiah, the one that would be the Savior of the world. That's what he died for. So if it's false, he would have been very foolish to not recant that statement at the end, which he could have. He was given that opportunity, and he didn't. The other thing is, if this was false and he knew it was false, not only is he foolish, but he's evil because he's asking people, his followers and others, to place their eternal destiny into his hands when he knows that he can't deliver. That's an evil thing to do. But Jesus stated this very exclusive claim. And then he was crucified, and then he rose from the dead. We celebrated that a few weeks ago. 
and his followers believed that. Because of his resurrection, because they had seen Jesus, they began to stake all of their belief and their faith and their eternity on the fact that he lived, died, and rose again. And one of his followers, Peter, who was so dramatically transformed by this resurrection of Christ, he was brought in before officials, and these are the words that he said, very exclusive as well. Salvation is found in no one else. That's exclusive claims right there. No one else. For there is no other name, that's the name of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You take those two statements, and those two statements alone say, we are not going to play in this pluralistic pool. We're not going to approach things in a, a syncretic way. We're not going to all just say, everyone just kind of believe whatever you want. These are very exclusive statements. And I want us to, as we start, I want us to go back to this word, truth. And I want us to back up a little bit, and this is where I want us to get to first into the, some philosophical implications, especially about this word truth. Because in conversations around these kind of topics, there are some statements that are made, there are some words that are used, there are some beliefs and some questions that are thrown around, and I believe some of it comes back to this whole concept. Again, let me just apologize. I don't have time to go into this in depth with that I don't want to oversimplify something that is very deep and complex. And in my attempts to cover this quickly, please know my heart, I don't in any way want my words to be demeaning, belittling, or condescending for those who would use them. I really don't. I just want us to think about these things. And what I want us to look at, first of all, are some phrases that are often used in relationship to these kind of conversations. And they're phrases that on the first, at, at the first glance, actually seemed to make some sense. And it was like, well, they're, they're, maybe that's right. All of these statements, I think it would be good for us to at least confront with this question. It's a three-word question that we would ask, is that true? So when we get to this, and I'm going to ask, we should ask this question. I want you to ask that question. This is your participation. This is, the, this is the extent of the conversation in this setting. I want to ask the question, and you will answer the question, is that true? Is that, I, I, I just messed that all up. When I ask for a question, would you repeat those words? What is the question? Is true? You guys got it. Okay. So the first statement I want us to look at is this, and it's a common one, no absolute truth. This says that there's no universal principles, there's no universal laws, there's no universal truths that apply to everybody in every culture, in every situation, or all times in all of history. It just says that that's not, that's, we, we don't do that. So they would say, there's no absolute truth, to which you really need to ask the question. And then it becomes a self-refuting self statement. Because it's stated absolutely, as an absolute truth. Now listen, I'm not just playing semantic games here. Really think this through. To state this, there are no absolute truths, is stating an absolute truth. And if you were to ask, is that true? And you were going to believe this, and you'd say, no. Well, then why did you say it? Now, again, I'm not trying to be little. It's just, you think this through. Another one that's closely related but nuanced difference is this. Truth is relative. What that means is, this may be true for you, it's just not true for me. It might be true for this culture, but not for this culture. It might have been true in that day, but not for this day. That it's all relative. To which we need to ask, which again, this becomes a self-refuting statement. If all truth is relative, and you say, is that true? Well, it might be. Might be for me, might be for you, might not be for you, might not be for today, might not be for that culture. So then it becomes a self-refuting statement as well. 
And, and it's like we use these things, or people will use these things as a smokescreen to get out of a conversation and never really think through the implications of those kind of arguments. So then you have a religious system, and you can take anyone, but we'll take Jesus, for instance, and he makes a statement that is stated as an absolute truth, that is stated as a universal truth and relevant for everybody, and like, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that kind of a statement. And so very often there's a pushback on a statement like that, and we'll just use Jesus instead of pointing fingers at any other religion. Jesus says something like that, to which some will reply, any claim to have a better or superior view is arrogant and wrong. This is very, very popular when you're talking about uh, syncretism, you know, that everything is equally valuable. For any religion, and for Jesus, or for Christians, to say, this is better, this is superior, that's just arrogant and wrong. To which we need to ask the question, because in stating that, you're saying, this is my view. And actually, this view of things is really better than the way that you're operating. So, in stating this, I'm saying that my view is actually better and superior than the way you're operating, which makes me arrogant and wrong. You see how that, all, that whole thing works? Is that we, we, we put these statements out, and we seem to think that ends the argument. That, that just opens up a whole other can of worms. And so Jesus comes along, and he makes this statement about who he is. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's an absolute statement. It's a universal statement, not relevant, uh, uh, relevant, not relative, relevant to everybody. And he says, and it's a better, superior statement. It is exclusive. But I love what Ravi Zacharias said. He said, truth by definition is exclusive. That anytime there is some truth, it is exclusive. Truth excludes its opposite. If something is true, it's true against something that is not. Now, this whole concept of truth being relative and there's no absolute truth, if that's the case, then here's good news for you students. If ever you're given a quiz, an exam, a test with a true-false, you can't get anything wrong. If they mark anything wrong, you just say, well, it might be true for you. It's just not true for me. It might have been relevant last semester, but not this semester. Because there is no truth. It, it's, it's, it's incredible, the thinking on that. That there is truth. And, and here's one other thing. That Christians so often are accused of, of feeling like, you know, they've got this exclusivity. All major world religions have non-negotiable exclusive claims in them. I could go through it. We don't have time for it. All of them do. This isn't just a Christianity thing, although Christians are so often singled out. Jesus is often singled out on this whole thing. But all of them have exclusive, non-negotiable claims. Which kind of leads us to another one of these statements that's often said is, don't you think, in essence, all religions are basically the same? I mean, essentially, they're the same. It's like you've heard the, the, you know, the, the wagon wheel uh, illustration. All religions are spokes in a wagon wheel, and they all go to the same hub, and that hub is God. Or you've heard the mountain illustration. You know, there's one mountain, and there's different trails, and there's different paths, and there's different ways to it, but it's the same mountain, we all get to the same summit. All religions are, in essence, the same, to which we should ask. The only person that would say all religions are essentially the same is the person who has not even done an elementary study of the world religions. The world religions are not all the same. They don't even claim to be the same. They don't even purport themselves to, to say we're all on this together. 
I mean, you take one of the most fundamental aspects of religion, and that is the, the existence of God or a God. I mean, that would be pretty fundamental to a religion, wouldn't you think? Hinduism says there's 331 million gods. Buddhism says there is no God. Judaism says there is a God, and his name is Yahweh. Islam says there is one God, and his name is Allah. Christianity says there is one God, and he reveals himself in the man Jesus Christ. See, there's a great deal of differences. On, th these aren't nuanced details. This is foundational tenets of religion. Or how about heaven, for instance? To where some of these have heaven, some of them have paradise. Again, Buddhism has no afterlife. Mormonism has three levels of heaven. Some of them have hell, some of them don't. All these differences, they are not all the same. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 17, I'll refer to this a few times today, Paul goes to a town called Athens. And in Athens, Athens is a very polytheistic city. A lot of different religions, a lot of different gods, a lot of different idols and temples. And there's Zeus, and there's Athena, and there's you know, all these different Greek gods. And he goes into to Athens, and he could have said, you know, hey, all truth is is relative, and all religions are basically the same. This works for you guys. Let me just tell you what works for me. He doesn't. He goes in there, and he points to Jesus. That's what he says in Acts 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and I'll come back to that later, and he said, men of Athens, I see then that in every way you are very religious. He acknowledges that there is a spiritual aspect to them. There's a religious aspect to them. And what is interesting, instead of going around and pointing out how wrong everybody else is, he keeps pointing to Jesus. He points to the truth. One more thing, and I need you to hear me all the way out because this is going to seem like I'm being very judgmental and condemning initially. Hear me all the way out on this. Again, in our pluralistic world, our syncretic world, there are two words, two words that stick, two words that we like to throw around, two words that we like to use, especially in arguments that we're talking about today. And the reason I say they're words that stick, one of the reasons is because many people believe that this is a sticking point for Christians and we need to get over it. The two words that stick are tolerance and coexist. Tolerance and coexist. The other reason I say these are words that stick is because we stick these words on our car. You've seen these kind of bumper stickers. Now, this is why I need you to hear me out, because you're thinking right now I'm condemning all this. Hear me all the way out. These bumper stickers that you've seen, and you may have on your car, hear me out. The tolerance thing. I am in complete agreement with someone who says we ought to tolerate the right of individuals to believe how they wish. I agree. The last thing I would ever want is for the United States to outlaw all religions except Christianity. I think that would be a disaster. That would be the worst thing. I agree that people should be given the right to believe whatever they want. I believe as well with the tolerance that there ought to be respect for individuals who believe different, who practice different than me. That's what we talked about last week, of having conversations even when we disagree without becoming, you know, militant and, and, and obnoxious. I agree with tolerance on the right to believe how you want and the respect for that. Here's what I don't agree with, because very often there's a subtle message deeper than just rights and respect. And very often, not always, it's pointed mostly at Christians. And it's this idea, that we ought to have tolerance so... If I happen to question, if I happen to evaluate, 
if I happen to critique or disagree with someone else, that somehow I'm now intolerant, I'm a hater, I'm judgmental, and I'm a bigot. Sometimes this message says that we need to agree and accept and celebrate everyone's belief system. And if you can't agree and celebrate it, at least, this is syncretism, at least acknowledge that it's equally valuable. That sounds great. That sounds harmonious. That sounds peaceful. Let me push a little harder. Do we always have tolerance? Have you ever heard of Hamas? Have you ever heard of ISIS? Do you realize that the atrocities that are done in those names are done in religion? Do we tolerate that? Do we tolerate religion where atrocities against women and children are done? Unthinkable things are done in the name of religion? And what do we do with the white supremacist militant groups that, that have this hatred and bigotry and the prejudice? The vast majority of those groups are foundly, uh, soundly founded on a religious belief and principle. And what do you do with something like several years ago with the Branch Davidians when David Koresh, this cult leader under the guise of religion, is fathering children with 12 and 13-year-old girls undiscriminately in his cult? Do we just allow this stuff to go on? You see, here's my problem with this. Not about the rights of people to believe and not the respect for them. It's that we just blanket accept everything that happens in the name of their faith or their practice. And you say, well, yeah, but those are extreme examples. Well, where do you draw the line? So we just tolerate everything. Well, maybe not. And very often when we fly the flag, wave the banner of tolerance and inclusivity, if you push hard enough, you begin to understand, yeah, that all sounds, again, harmonious and all accepting. Tolerance and inclusivity. But you will find the people that wave that banner are tolerant and inclusive of people who are tolerant and inclusive. But if someone is intolerant or exclusive, they're not allowed in, which makes this person intolerant and exclusive. They're intolerant to the intolerant, and they exclude the exclusivist. Does that make sense? All right. That ought to give you enough to talk about. These are just some philosophical implications. It's stuff that we will hear in these conversations. You just need to think it through. We'll stop with that one. I, I want to move on. Um, in, in Acts chapter 17, as I referred to, Paul comes to, to Athens, and, and instead of putting down and condemning every other religion, the idolatry, which was starkly contrasted to the Old Testament laws, he instead, he keeps pointing to the resurrected Jesus, to this other truth, this truth that is universal, that is absolute, and that is better. And I want us to, to come back to, to this, this foundation and, and explain this one about Jesus. Let's go back to his statement. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we've said, this is very exclusive. As we've said, it's stated as an absolute truth. One that is relevant to everybody, not relative. And Jesus would even say, this is better and superior. I mean, in John 10.10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He said, this what I'm offering here? It's a forgiven life. It's an abundant life. 
It's a purposeful, meaningful life. It's an eternal life. It's a better life here and in eternity. He's saying this is supreme. This is better. This is absolute truth. Now, can we, can we just for the sake of argument, suspend our assessment on whether he's true or, or accurate on this or not for just a minute? Let's, for the sake of argument, just say, okay, if that's true, then let's confront some pushback that we will get in these conversations. If that's true, what do you do with the people who are very, very sincerely following a different religion, a different faith path, a, a different understanding or belief system? What, what about that? I mean, they're sincere and they're, they're devoted, and doesn't that count for something? Because it's true, if you haven't noticed this, there are many people who are far more devout and far more sincere in following their religious path than most American Christians. There are many, many people in their sacrifice, in their discipline, in their diligence, in their commitment that are far more sincere than many, many American Christians. So doesn't that count for anything? Wouldn't God say, well, their sincerity counts for something without uh, desiring not to oversimplify? Is it possible that an individual or a group can be sincere and sincerely wrong? And I don't mean that to, to, to lighten it, but yes, they're sincere, but can they be sincerely wrong? Let me, let me illustrate this. This might be a, a weak illustration. Last October, I was running the uh, Portland Marathon. I've done it several times. The first five miles of the Portland Marathon d- does this big serpentine through downtown uh, Portland, and then on you go. And because the Portland Marathon is a medium-sized marathon, 10 to 12,000 runners, they do a, a wave start, and you're in different corrals based on your estimated time of completion. So... Corral number uh, A, Corral A is very, very, I've never been in Corral A. Corral A is very, very fast people. They're going to run this marathon very, very fast. And then Corral B and then Corral C and on down to Corral H, I think it was. And in Corral, uh, starting at least at Corral B, there are pace groups. So if you have a set goal, like I would like to run a marathon in this amount of time, you find the group. And these people have trained, and they can guarantee, you stick with us through this marathon, we will get you to the finish line in this amount of time. So the race started. Corral A takes off fast, like a shot. Out they go. Away they go. Everyone moves up. At the front of Corral B was the pace group, and I think it was a three-hour pace group. These were going to be people that were run in three hours. And very often in these pace groups, it becomes kind of a little community. You're going to spend the next few hours together. You're going to encourage one another. You kind of talk a little bit at different times in the race. And so the gun goes off for Corral B, and away they went. And as this pace group was leading Corral B, and they're kind of forming some community, the pacers talking to the runners missed a turn in downtown Portland. And they went an extra quarter of a mile and then turned and then came back an extra quarter of a mile. And as they were going, Corral C, which I was a part of, took off and we followed Corral B. (laughs) And then Corral D followed us and then Corral E and all the way through. Now we were all very sincere in running this marathon. We were all very devoted. But we were all sincerely lost there for a while and we were all sincerely wrong. The only redeeming factor is that everyone who completed it that day technically did an ultramarathon because it ended up being 26.7 miles instead of 26.2. We were sincere, we were devoted, we were led astray, but we were still wrong. See, could it be that religious groups, religious individuals, 
They might be sincere. They might be devoted, but they're still wrong. You say, but, but maybe it's not their fault. Maybe they were led astray. They're still wrong. So is God going to? We'll get to that. Here's another argument. How about those who are good and moral? Because every single one of us know people who are not Christians, not followers after Jesus. They're good, good people. High morals. Generous people with their time and their resources. Kind people. Responsible people. In fact, I bet if we took a poll, every single one of us in this room would say, actually, I know some non-Christians that live a better life than some of my Christian friends. I mean, isn't that true? Okay, don't point. Some of you are already like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we know they're not followers after Jesus. They're better parents. They're better spouses. They're better citizens. They're, they're better neighbors. They're better, uh, you know, employers and employees. They're just better people. You say, well, doesn't that count for something? Shouldn't that, shouldn't that mean something that, that they're good and, that, you know, and they're trying? Boy, that, that's a great, great point. And it's one that many people, even in the church, say, I think that makes sense to me, that God will take all that into consideration. But what we have to wrestle with this is, how is salvation merited? By what means are we granted salvation? What does it take for us to be saved? Is it just about being sincere? Is it just about us being good enough? What merits that? What brings it along? So we think, okay, well, God is a good God. And if I try hard enough, if I'm good enough, if I don't do some things, then God will take that into consideration and he'll let me in. Very, very common belief, even with Christians. Very common belief. And it sounds fair. It sounds wonderful. It sounds great. It sounds just. Get rewarded for doing good. But if you push on it a little bit, it brings up all kinds of questions. How do you ever know when you've done enough? How do you know if you're good enough? And how, how is all of that weighed out in the end? I mean, with God, is it, is it just a simple majority that I have one more good deed than bad deeds? And, and how is that kept track? I mean, do some of them have a bigger you know, weight and numeric number than others? And, and, and you're trying to estimate, okay, I remember there was those days in college years, but, but you know, then I, I went on that missions trip, and, and how does all this weigh out? And how does God decide? And does he grade on a curve? That's the one we always go to. You know, I'm, not, I'm better than this person. I don't do that. You know, Hitler! Hitler's our go-to. We love Hitler because he sets the benchmark that we can all, you can all do better than Hitler. So, so how do you do that? And then you say, well, well, they just go to, to a faith system, to a belief system. That makes the waters even muddier. That really fuzzies things up. Because every belief system has a different way and a different requirement. I mean, you go to Buddhism. And for Buddhism, there's the, you know, the, the, the four noble truths. And in that, there's the eightfold pathway. You go to Islam, and there's the, the five pillars of faith. Those are different. You, you go to to Hinduism, and there's the karma thing, and then there's the samsara, which is this whole rebirth and recycle and reincarnation deal over and over again and trying to come back a little bit better next time and however many lifetimes it's going to take. And then you go to Judaism, and there's the Ten Commandments, and if you really push, there's the Levitical law, and there's all this confusion about, well, which one do I follow? Because they're all different. And they all have different requirements and different pathways and different discipline and different amount of sacrifice and different much stuff you need to give up. It's like you need a religious Trivago 
Search them all and tell me what's the best deal. Because they're all different. And then Jesus comes along. He says this moral improvement plan, this pick yourself up by the moral bootstraps, try a little bit harder plan. He says that doesn't work for us in Christianity. Jesus comes along and says Christianity is just the opposite. He says, I'll tell you how you get into God's presence. I'll tell you how you get into heaven. There's one requirement. Perfection. Perfection. And if there's ever been, ever been a demerit, if there's ever been a deficit, ever been a debt on your account, you have disqualified yourself from ever being in the presence of God because God is more holy than you ever realized. He is more righteous. Whatever you thought of him, he is more holy and more righteous. And the only thing, the only one that can stand in his presence and dwell with him is the one who is perfect. So Jesus sets the bar so high that there's not one of us in this room that could ever clear it. And he says there's no amount of moral improvement, there's no amount of good deeds that will ever bring you to that point of perfection. Not at all. Jesus comes along and says, instead, instead of trying to convince God of how good you are, you need to realize really how bad you are and that you don't stand a chance on your own efforts. That sounds horrible. This is the good news. Scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, trusts, leans into, depends on, believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. This is how it happens. Not by me trying harder, being better. It's not what I do, it's what he's done. Or how about this? For it is by grace. Wait, 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 wait. We're talking about trying to to have merits for salvation. Grace means unmerited grace favor. Like nothing that I deserve. Nothing that I've earned. Nothing that somehow is coming to me. For it is by grace, this unmerited favor that you've been saved through faith. There's that thing again. It's this belief. And this is not from yourselves. You mean it's not about my good words? It's not about following this pathway? It's not about being this discipline? It's not about following all that? No, it's not from from yourselves. It's the gift of God and not by works so that no one can boast. None of us can stand before God and say, look what I did. I earned my way in. I good deeded my way in. I'm so great. Or what about this? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all been disqualified for standing in God's presence because of his glorious holiness and righteousness. All have sinned and you could put all and all are justified. That word is a legal word. It means acquitted. All are justified freely. By his unmerited favor, not something we, we earned. Through the redemption that came by working really hard. Through the redemption by stacking up more good deeds. Through the redemption that came by following this pathway, doing these disciplines. For, no, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, no other religion offers that. R.C. Sproul said this, Moses could, could mediate the law. Muhammad could brandish a sword. Buddha could give personal counsel. Confucius could offer wise sayings. But none of these men was qualified to offer atonement for the sins of the world. Christ alone. You see, for those of us who are convicted by this, that there is only one way. And Jesus said, I am that way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
we acknowledge that is very, very exclusive. Very exclusive. But the good news is, it's all-inclusive. What the book of Romans says, for everyone, not just those who are born in a certain caste system, not just, every, not just someone that, you know, that somehow has been reincarnated 14,000 times, not just someone who's kept the law perfectly, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because of what Jesus has done. There's a woman named uh, Sarah uh, Bessie. She said this, about, and I love it in relationship to this conviction about Jesus being the only way. Conviction is less about condemnation than it is about invitation. I love that. This idea that we say there's only one way. It's not about condemning everybody else. It's about inviting everybody else. Because this is good news. Now some say, well, yeah, that all sounds great, but, but Bob, i got to push back on you a little bit. If that's the criteria, if that's what God requires, what do you do with the aborigine that's born in the outback of Australia and never makes it into Melbourne or Sydney or anywhere else and never even hears about the Bible? And what do you do with that gal that's, that's born deep in the Amazon basin, way up at the headwaters of the Amazon, and never has ever even met a white person, a missionary, doesn't even own a toothbrush, let alone a Bible? Or what do you do with that, that Maasai warrior that was raised on, on the plains of East Africa and only knows what he's, his, his parents and his grandparents and generations have ever done? Or what about that, that, that young Buddhist boy that was born in the, in the hills of Nepal and that's all he's ever... Or, or that, that girl that was born in a hovel in Calcutta in a Hindu family that while it's illegal still believes in the caste system and they say, honey, this is your lot in life. We just hope next time it'll be better. What do you do with them? Is it... Is it the same criteria for them? They've never even heard about Jesus. I mean, that's not just narrow-minded. That's mean if God's going to hold them to a standard they've never heard of. We're not just talking about inclusive or, uh, exclusivity. We're talking about an evil plan. You know, th this isn't just, you know, in, uh, it's injustice. And Bob, what if you were born in the heart of Calcutta? And what if you were born in East Africa. And what if you were born in the outback? What if it was different for you? Great questions and questions that will be put to you when you have these conversations. So let's talk about it. So our third one, some theological considerations. Maybe in those situations, we ought to consider God's creation and our conscience. Let's get to that. But before we get to that, let me talk about this whole, what if I was born to a Hindu family in Calcutta? What if I was born to a Buddhist family in Nepal? What about that? Okay. Back to Paul in Acts 17. Read Acts 17. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. You've got to understand, he's on what's called Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And it's right in the shadow of the Acropolis, the highest point in Athens. And on the top of the Acropolis is the Parthenon. It's this massive temple to the goddess um, uh, Athena. Now, if I showed you a picture of it, you would all recognize it. It's like the landmark. It is the trademark. It, it's when you think Greece and Athens, it's that building. So the Areopagus, so down on, on this, this rock, Mars Hill, I've been there. This is where all the the Stoic philosophers and the Epicureans would come and they would all talk about ideas. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. That kind of stuff was happening there every day. So Paul comes in and he's talking about this Jesus who's resurrected and they say, we want to hear more about your new idea, this, you know, kind of openness that's going on. 
And you have to understand the weight of what's happening. He's right in the shadows of this, what is one of the, the wonders of the ancient world, this, this incredible temple that took hundreds of years to build. And he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. You can't imagine what that, that statement meant in that setting. And there are so many idols and temples around Athens. And he says, the God, I mean like the God, doesn't need these man-made temples. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He is the source of all things, all of us, every breath. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now look at this. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. What he is saying is this. Our God is sovereign. He is the source. He is the creator of every single person. And he determines when we will live and where we will live. This addresses that issue of, Bob, what if you were born in the outback of Australia? That would have been by God's design. And why? Why? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, and here's two promises, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. They say, listen, it doesn't matter where you're born. God wants us to seek him and to reach out for him. And maybe he's referring back to that, that phrase in Jeremiah where it says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You seek me, you reach out to me, you will find me. I'm not far from anyone. I don't have to be in a temple. I don't have to be with a missionary. You're out there. I'm there too. I'm not far from you. I want you to seek me. That kind of speaks to some of that sincerity. If someone is really seeking God, God says, you will find me. You will find me. Okay, but they're out there and they've never heard of Jesus. So what? Romans 1 says this. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. He says, listen, if they'll just look around and see this world that I've created, they will see that there is some trans transcendent being who is all-powerful, who is divine. I've revealed that in my world that I've created, and everyone sees it. You know, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glories of God. He says, every night I preach a sermon. Every day with the rising of the sun, I send out a telegram. He says, I reveal that to them. They're without excuse. Or how about our conscience? You know, we are all stamped with the image of God. Every individual is stamped with the image of God. At our core, we are spiritual beings. Have you ever wondered, why is it that every society and every culture on every continent throughout all of human history has had some religious belief system? Why is that? Because deep in the soul of every single one of us, there's a longing for the transcendent. We are spiritual beings. In Ecclesiastes, it says, God has set eternity on our hearts. That's why if we will seek him and reach out for him, we will find him. There's something inside us that says, there's got to be more. There's got to be someone greater. There's got to be a maker. And in Romans, it talks about our conscience, that God has written his law. The whole concept of right and wrong, we get that. 
We don't have to be taught that. We understand that God has put that on our heart, and it's that conscience that he's given to us. One other consideration is God's character. God's character. If you were with us last summer when we studied through the life of Abraham, you may remember when that portion um, out of Genesis where God is preparing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes to the bargaining table and starts, you know, negotiating with him and saying, God, you know, are you going to destroy all of them? If there are 50 righteous people, you're going to destroy the righteous people as well? And God says, no, that's a good point. No, I won't, I won't do that. So he goes, oh, okay, well, how about if there's 40? I mean, you're not going to cave for 10, are you? Oh, no, and you remember that. I mean, he goes, oh, how about 30? Oh, 25, 20, do I heard 15? Yeah. He gets down to 10. God, are you going to destroy this whole area if there's 10 righteous people? I mean, what about that's not fair to the righteous people? And so he gets to the end of this negotiation in Genesis 18. He says, far be it from you. I mean, he, he's, he's leaning into God's character. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous, to which we could argue, are there really any righteous outside of Jesus? To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. And then he asks God a rhetorical question that I ask you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Can we not give God a little bit of credit? We get on our moral high horse. We begin to tell God what's just and what's right and what he should do and what he shouldn't. Can we maybe just trust that God, the righteous, holy God, the good, gracious, merciful God, the just God, will do what's right? And where do we get off in this idea that God just loves to kill people, destroy the wicked, punish them, send them? That, that it just makes his day. It's like the highlight of his day. What was, how was your day today, deity? Oh, it's great. I got to kill a bunch of people. Is that the character of our God? In Ezekiel, where God says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Isn't that what I want? How about this out of 2 Peter? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or 1 Timothy, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is one. Jesus, there's one way. There's one truth. And he says, I want everyone to know that one way. Because every other way, you might be sincere, you might be good, but you will fall short. It is exclusive. One more verse. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. See, there's another, there's a whole other sermon Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make people that were dead alive. That's the difference. And no discipline and no religious system can take a dead person to make it alive. Only Jesus, the resurrected king, is resurrecting me. Made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace, this unmerited favor, you have been saved. You see why this whole idea that there's only one way is not a condemnation. It is exclusive, but all-inclusive. It's an invitation. This is the only way. It's through what Jesus has done. Now, 
I've gone way too long, I know. Some of you want to dig in some more. I listed some resources on the bottom of your link. The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, great book, chapter one, he deals with this. I leaned heavily on some of these resources. The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, in objection number five, he interviews Ravi Zacharias, does a great overview of this whole thing. Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias, actually anything Ravi Zacharias <laughs> writes, phenomenal. Uh, How Good is Good Enough by Andy Stanley. This is just some reason. There's so much out there. Can I come back to this one more time? When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's good news. That's not condemnation. That's invitation. That's grace, unmerited favor. And that's why we believe this. And that's why we believe the most loving thing we can ever do is point people to Jesus. If you had a religious Trivago, I'd say, here's your best deal. Book it now. (laughs) And I would just say to you, if you've been trying to do it on your own sincerity, your own moral good deeds, or your own efforts, why not today? Why not today say, I'm going to put all my trust on what Jesus has done for me. All right. That ought to open up some conversations. Why don't you stand? Hey, we're going to sing this song. And there's a line in this song. Go ahead and stand. There's this line in the song. It says, we trust the name of Jesus, the only way, the only truth, and the life.